your child on that day, because of this, God, God did for me when I left Egypt. And the Mishnah is giving sort of a drash on that pasuk, right? The verse says that you should say, this is what God did for me when I went out from Egypt. And of course, you yourself will not have actually gone out from Egypt. And so from this, the Mishnah learns that actually we should all sort of feel as if we went out from Egypt. We should all be able to say, when I went out from Egypt, this is how it was. Um, and, and so it seems to me that when, when we think about slavery, basically it is, um, it's something that, that we very specifically, we specifically focus on. We don't sort of treat it as, as, as a forgotten about detail of our past, but that we, we very deliberately choose to always start our stories with the fact that, that we were slaves. And I, I guess when I was thinking about this lecture, I was interested in, in what the implications of that are. Right, what does it mean for us that when we think of ourselves as a people, we always start with the fact that we began our history as, as slaves to Pharaoh? Um, and it seems that there were a couple of, of implications of this, and I'm certainly interested in hearing, in hearing other ideas afterwards. But um, you'll notice if you look on your source sheet, part number two is implications of the emphasis on slavery. And, um, and I think the first implication is that we're supposed to feel a sense of, of empathy for other people. Because we ourselves begin as slaves, we began as sort of powerless, vulnerable people who are abused by others, we're supposed to feel a sense of kinship and a sense of empathy with other people who are in the same situation. Um, if you look, for example, at, at source number three, also from the book of Exodus, says here, V'ger lo tilchat, you should not oppress the stranger, v'atem yidatem et nefesh hager, you know, you know the soul of the stranger, you know what it feels like to be a stranger, kigerim heyitem be'eretz mitzrayim, because you were strangers in Egypt. Now, one of the things that we'll, that we'll notice as we look through these sources is that there are sort of are two aspects to the slavery in Egypt that constantly get emphasized. One is the fact that we were strangers in Egypt, that we were sort of vulnerable, we didn't have anybody to look out for us, and the other is the fact that we were that we were slaves. Those two sort of combined together to be, to be the experience of Egypt. Right? So the, the first verse over here that we saw says that basically we have to be really careful not to oppress the stranger because we know what it felt like. Right? The verse doesn't just say do this because it's the right thing to do. It's right not to oppress strangers. But instead the verse emphasizes that you know, you, you know, you know what the ger feels like. You know what the stranger feels like because you, you had that experience. Um, if you look on in source number four, sort of continues in that theme. If, if a stranger lives with you in your land, you should not oppress, oppress him or her. Right now, this verse goes even further, right? Actually, the stranger should be treated as a native born, right? That should be treated as, 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 one, of, as one of everybody else. Um, and you should love the stranger as you love yourself, which is also a big step forward, right? Remember the first verse that we saw just said that you shouldn't oppress the stranger because you know what it was like to be strangers. And here we're going even further, right? It's a sort of a positive commandment, not just not to oppress the stranger, but actually also to love the stranger. Um, and again, the reason that's given is right? because you, you were strangers in Egypt. You, you, you knew this experience, and so therefore you need to sort of positively act towards the stranger, you need to love the stranger as you, as you love yourself. Um, so, so far, those, those two sets of verses were about kind of the way that we as the people of Israel are supposed to interact with the strangers. If you look at source number five, this is actually about, also about the way that, that God interacts with the powerless. 
Um, you'll notice in, in verse 17, verse 17 actually establishes first and foremost that God is, is very powerful. Right? In verse 17 it says, Ki Hashem hu Elohim Adonim. Because God is the God over all other gods and is the master over all other, uh, 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 over all other masters or all, over, all other lords. Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor right? God is, is great and awesome and powerful and mighty. Asher lo panim shochad. God uh, doesn't sort of curry favors and God doesn't take bribes, right? So the first thing we know about God is that God is, is alone in might and power and is, is not possible to sway God by any of the petty means that we could sway a human ruler. Um, and having established the fact that God is, is powerful in that way, verse 18 goes on and talks about what God does with God's power. God does justice with the orphan and the widow. And God loves the stranger and gives the stranger food and, and clothing. Um, and I think this is a very interesting juxtaposition, right? First we establish God as being ultimately powerful and the very, then the very next thing that we say is that what God does with God's power is that God takes care of the powerless the way that God demonstrates God's power is that, is that God looks after the people who don't have power um, you'll notice also that there, there's a particular trilogy introduced over here in verse 18 the trilogy of the Yatom Amana and the Ger the orphan, the widow and the stranger it gets repeated over and over again these, are, these three are thought to be sort of the most powerless people in society right? There, no one is there to look after them, right? The widow, the orphan, and the stranger—they're—they're—they're they're, they're the you know—they're the most vulnerable, and therefore, you know, when we're describing God's might and God's power, it's—it's it's in terms of looking after these these three who are powerless, um, and sort of. By extension, we're told in verse 19, And you too, just as God loves the stranger, you too should love the stranger, because you were strangers in Egypt. Um, and I think that the, the, the power dynamics here are very interesting, right? Because in verse 17, we establish the fact that God is, is the most powerful. Then we establish the fact that what God does with God's power is, is look after the powerless. And then we're told that, you know, now that we are fortunate enough to be in a more powerful position, right, the, the you know, Deuteronomy is, is assuming that the people will be living in their own land and will be in a position of power, and what we need to do with our power as well is to look after, look after those who are powerless. And again, we're reminded that we, we were once the powerless ones ourselves, and that in the same way that God looks after other people who are powerless, God also took care of us when, when we were powerless. Um, so, okay, so, so far, all of these sources have been about sort of the aspect of, of our experience of being gerim, of being strangers and powerless in that way in Egypt. Um, you'll see in source number six, we're also told to remember the fact that, that we were slaves, and that's also supposed to encourage us to behave with a certain amount of empathy and concern for, for, the, for the, the weak. Um, here we're told in verse 17, this is in... Uh, Source number six, it's chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 17. mishpat geriatom. You shouldn't pervert the justice that is due to the, the stranger or the orphan. beged almana. And you shouldn't take the garment of a widow as, as collateral. If, if the widow borrows money from you, don't, don't take her clothing as collateral, right? She doesn't, doesn't have anything. You need to make sure she, she has something still. Um, and you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt. 
Remember beforehand it was all about being a stranger. Now it's you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And God redeemed you from, from slavery in Egypt. And therefore I command you to do this thing today. To do this thing, namely to take care of the, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Now verse 18 is also... It's also sort of interesting, right? Because what, what's happening in verse 18 is that it's almost a little bit circular, right? You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt, um, and therefore, because you were powerless, you should take care of these other powerless people. But there's also another way to read it, which, is, which Rashi actually points out, is that it could be that um, you should remember that you were a slave. God redeemed you from there so that God could command you to do these things. Basically, that the whole idea of the, the whole reason why the people were redeemed was specifically so that they would be able to, to, um, to care for other people who are weak. Right, which is interesting. It makes it sort of circular, right? God, you know, when you were weak, God saved you, and you should remember that and take care of the weak. But also, God saved you so that you would take care of the weak, right? It seems to sort of follow on itself. Um, verse 19 continues with this idea, when you are harvesting your wheat in your field, you forget some of the wheat, you leave it behind in the field. You shouldn't say, oh, I forgot my wheat, I need to run back and go get it. Instead, you should leave it behind in the field, leave it for our, our trio of, of vulnerable people, remember the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Leave it for them. So that God will bless you in all the things that you do. Verse 20 and 21 continue in the same vein. It has to do with uh, other types of harvesting. When you harvest your, your olives and when you harvest your grapes, it's the same sort of idea. You shouldn't try too hard to get every last olive. And you shouldn't try too hard to get every last grape. Instead, you should, you should leave it there and let, let these, these poor people who don't have anybody to look after them, you should let them come and, and they can sort of have whatever's, whatever's left over of, of these various crops. Um, and the reason, again, that we're told over here in verse 22 is, You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And that's why God says, that's why I'm telling you to do this, right? Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that's why you should, uh, you know, specifically leave these crops for the, people, for the people who need them. Now, this phrase of, You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that's why God is telling you to do something, actually appears in three other cases in the book of Deuteronomy. It appears in the case of Shabbat. We're told in Deuteronomy that we should keep Shabbat and every member of the household should rest, including the slaves, including the strangers who live nearby. Everybody who's there needs to rest. And the reason that's given is you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that's why it's really important that, that the slaves get to rest on Shabbat as well. Um, it also comes up with the, the mitzvah of Hanakah. Hanakah is, is if you own a, a Jewish slave and you are setting the Jewish slave free after the amount of uh, the, the years of servitude have ended. Usually it's a, it's a six-year slave period. So in the seventh year, you let the slave go free. And when you let them go free, you're not just supposed to sort of let them walk out the door, but instead you're supposed to give them gifts so that way they can sort of be set up to, to move forward in life. Um, and regarding that mitzvah as well, the Torah says that you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that's why God is telling you to do this. And it appears one last time regarding the holiday of Shavuot. People should, the, the, the verse says that everybody should gather together in Jerusalem and rejoice. Um, everyone including, you know, sons, daughters, 
slave women, slave men, the strangers who live by your gates, everybody should gather together and rejoice. And there too we're told, um, and you should remember that, that you were a slave in Egypt and that uh, that's why God is telling you to do this. Now, one of the things that, that, that's interesting to notice when you sort of look back at the verses that we were looking at is that whenever there's a mention of, of, of Gerut, of being a stranger, there the verses are all about, they're all about empathy, right? You, you know the soul of, of, of the stranger. You should love the stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger, right? There's always the sense of, of kind of you know what it feels like to be this person, and so therefore... Uh, you need to, you know, you need to look out for them. And you'll notice that whenever there's mention of sort of the fact that we were slaves, um, there's not an empathy there, right? It never says you should love the slave because you were a slave. It never says you should, um, you know, you, you know what it feels like. You know the soul of a slave. Um, and I think that that's an interesting sort of distinction, right? That, that when we're talking about strangers, there's, there's a demand for empathy. And when we're talking about slaves, there's just a sense of, you should, you should remember that this was who you were. These were your origins. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, I've actually been asking a lot of people around Trisha and other people that I've been talking to over the past few days, I've been asking why, why you think that is, right? Because it seems to me to be an interesting question, right? Why would, why would you need to empathize with the, the stranger but not with the slave? Like, I guess I'm curious. Does anybody have any ideas about why, why that would be? Were you going to say something? Right? So on the one hand, right, maybe it's easier to empathize with a stranger because nobody really wants to think about what it feels like to be a slave. And, and also, if slaves are really just property that you own, then you, you wouldn't so much talk about the feelings that would be involved in it, which is really interesting, although I guess it still seems to me that if we're remembering the fact that we ourselves were slaves, I, it almost seems like you would especially want to encourage people maybe to, to sort of think about what that feels like, unless maybe that's kind of too far. You know, we can't, we can't really imagine that. We can only imagine, imagine being a stranger. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does anybody else have any other ideas? Yeah. Well, you say you can't dwell on slavery forever. You have to. You identify as a slave. And you love a slave mentality. Oh, so that's interesting, right? And I guess that that's sort of similar, where, you know, we'd want people to empathize with the strangers, but if you, if you think too much about what it felt like to be a slave, you might never be able to move past it, and so it's best to, to, to not think about that, that too much. Think about it, but mm-hmm. to, No longer obsessed by by by, by the demons of that, of that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, okay, so that's very interesting, right? You, you couldn't, there's no sort of legal way that you would become a widow or an orphan or a stranger, but slavery sort of, there were laws that kind of mandated the beginning and the end of it, and so maybe uh, there's less of a need to sort of feel that feeling. It's more of a, we would want, we would want to, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that when the laws I mean, that, that, that's very interesting. I mean, in fact, when I was, I was speaking about this earlier today with Ethan Tucker, who, who teaches at Trisha now, um, he was saying that it seemed to him also that the, the, um, the orphan and the, and the widow and the stranger were sort of people who were falling through the cracks of society, right? They were the people who there, there wasn't any sort of structure to fit them into. Whereas the slave, even though it was, you know, a very hard life, clearly, to be a slave, there was still sort of a sense that there was somebody who was supposed to be, the, the slave's master was in charge of looking out for the slave. There was, in theory, someone who was responsible for him or her. Whereas if you were a widow or, or an orphan or, or a stranger, then there wasn't anybody who thought it was their responsibility to look out for you. And maybe that would be why uh, the Bible specifically wants to encourage people to sort of feel the sense of sympathy for, for them. Right? You, you know what it was like to be in that situation where no one was looking out for you. And so uh, you know, we, we want you to, you know, uh, b- because nobody, has, nobody is sort of officially obligated to look out for them, we want to sort of, you know, implore people to kind of feel, feel this sort of sense of empathy, which, which could very well be also. Um, I'd, never, I'd never noticed that there was that distinction beforehand, so I thought it was very interesting. Yeah? If we look at the Meaning an orphan who didn't, an orphan not of Jewish parents. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I, my sense is that, you know, in general, when the Bible talks about sort of the orphans and the widows, I think usually they're imagining that they're Jewish orphans and widows and that the sort of the strangers are sort of the sort of general non-Jews who are there. But, um, but, it, but it is interesting to think about that, right? Because in, in sort of in modern day society, you're right. I think the issues come... It's a good point, and it certainly seems that, that all of these verses are definitely kind of encouraging people to generally, if, if no one else is looking out for this person, that means really that you have a special obligation to do that. That in general, the people who are sort of the most vulnerable in society are the people who we're supposed to, we're supposed to remember that we were once just like them, and we, we sort of know what it feels like, and right, it, and, and, and I think the sense is certainly that, that it's, in, it's in everybody's, um, it's everybody's obligation to, to do as much as possible for them. Um, 
so basically, get, getting back to my, my original question of what, what the implications for, for us is, you know, what are the implications of starting our story with the fact that, that we were vulnerable and weak and slaves? Um, I think that, that you know, one of, the, one of the implications is that, like I was saying before, we're, we're supposed to have empathy for other people who are in a similar situation. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to look at the people who are vulnerable and powerless, and we're supposed to think we were once just like them, and therefore we have a special obligation to, to look out for them. Um, and... And I think that that, that that idea was actually very radical, right? The idea somehow that the powerless in society are people to whom everybody has an obligation, you know, to, to take care of them, that was actually something that, that, was, that was unusual. And if you look at source number seven, this is from Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of, of Morality. And um, he actually... <laughs> very controversial figure for, for many reasons. Some people accuse him of being anti-Semitic. But, um, but he does talk about this, this revolt in morality in a way that I thought was, was interesting and worth looking at. Um, if you look, I'll, I'll read from source number seven here. Uh, he says, nothing which has been done on earth against the noble, the mighty, the masters, and the rulers is worth mentioning compared with what the Jews have done against them. The Jews, that priestly people which in the last resort was able to gain satisfaction from its enemies and conquerors only through a radical revaluation of their values. It was the Jews who, rejecting the aristocratic value equation, good equals noble, equals powerful, equals beautiful, equals happy, equals blessed, ventured with awe-inspiring consistency to bring about a reversal, saying, only those who suffer are good, only the poor, the powerless, the lowly are good. Whereas you, rich, the noble and powerful, you are eternally wicked, cruel, lustful, insatiate, godless. The slaves' revolt in morality begins with the Jews. It's kind of a dense paragraph to start with, right? But basically what Nietzsche is saying is that there used to be things that everybody agreed were good. Everybody thought it was good to be sort of powerful and strong and beautiful, right? And if you were lucky enough to be powerful and strong and healthy, then basically you could do whatever you wanted to anyone else. And he says that basically the Jews bring about a revolt in morality because what the Jews say is that just because you are strong and powerful doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want to other people. And in fact, the Jews value the people who are vulnerable and powerless and, and lowly. Now, Nietzsche goes a little bit too far here, right? He says only those who suffer are good, right? Judaism doesn't actually say that. We don't say that only the widows and orphans and strangers are good and everybody else is bad. But there definitely is a sense that, that there's a value to people who are powerless and that it is in the interest and it is, it is right for the powerful to help out the powerless. And uh, Nietzsche has total contempt for that idea, right? He says this brings about the enervation of our race. This is what weakens us. We, if you're strong, you should just focus on being strong and you should do whatever you want to the weak people. Um, and, uh, and I thought it was interesting that he, he sort of locates the shift in what, you know, what, what he calls sort of the revolt in morality. He locates that with the Jews, right? He says, you know, the Jews, once they overthrow their enslavers, right, what they do, it's not enough for them just to overthrow their enslavers, but actually what they do is that they overthrow the values of their enslavers as well. The enslavers' values were, you know, we're powerful, we can force these people to do whatever we want, and the Jews say, not only can you no longer force us to do whatever you want, but the whole idea that you could force us to is evil, right, is, is wrong. It's wrong to make people do whatever you want them to do. Um, so like I said, Nietzsche himself <laughs> criticizes that, but I think, you know, for the most part, uh, certainly the Torah does not criticize that, right? The, the Bible basically says, you know, sort of along the lines of what Nietzsche says that it says, right? That we should help out the powerless, right? Not that only the powerless are good, but that certainly the fact that you are powerless doesn't mean that 
people can do whatever they want to you. It means that, in fact, you are um, in a category of people who is, you know, sort of who, who's entitled to special protection, and that there are all of these laws that sort of implore the, the regular people to do whatever they want to help out, to help out the people who are powerless. Um, okay, so all of that is sort of under sort of part A of the implications, which is that one of the reasons why we constantly remember that we were slaves is that so that we, we remember to have sympathy for, for other people in, in, in similar situations and, and to take care of them. Um, I think an, a second implication of the fact that we constantly think about the fact that we were slaves is that slavery is supposed to frame our relationship with God. To some extent, the fact that God redeemed us from slavery um, and the fact that sort of now we become slaves of God, that's supposed to kind of form the, the structure by which, by which we think about God. Um, and this also we see in, in, in a number of different verses. Uh, if you look over here at source number, number eight, uh, this is the, the, first, the first of the Ten Commandments, right? God sort of introduces who, who God is to the people with, with this verse. Right? God says, Anochi Hashem I am the Lord your God, Asher who brought you out of Egypt from from, from the house of slavery or from, from bondage. Right, and so it seems that sort of the, the very premise on which the other nine commandments will follow, the whole basis of the, the structure of the relationship between God and the people is the fact that God brought these people out of, God brought us, you know, these people out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, and, um, and because God did this, therefore now, you know, we have all these other, all these other laws to follow. Um, Source number nine also continues to talk about this, right? Source number nine is from Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse seven. God didn't choose you from amongst all the other nations because you were more in number, right? It's not because you were so great. When God was shopping around for a people, God didn't say, oh, those Israelites, they're the most powerful and the best, and that's why I'm going to choose them. Instead, you were the smallest, right? It wasn't the most impressive people out there that God chose. You, you instead you were you were small and in fact you were slaves, right? You were in pretty bad shape. Um, right? Instead, the reason why God chose you wasn't because you were so great, but it was because God loved you, and and also because God was fulfilling the oath, the covenant that God had constructed with your with your ancestors. That's why God brought you out of Egypt. God redeemed you from, from slavery. From the hand of Paro, the, the king. Um, so, so here too, I think, I think that there's a sense that, that one of the ways that, that the exodus and that sort of remembering that we were slaves is supposed to supposed to feel this sense of humility, right? We know that at the point that God chose us, it wasn't that we were in this great bargaining position, right? Where, you know, God chose us because, you know, we, you know there was something especially great about us. Instead, we, we were very small, we were few in number, we were slaves, um, and God chose us because God, God loves us. And there's a sense that we're, we're supposed to feel sort of humbled by that, right? We're not supposed to say, you know, you know, we're, we're so exciting and that's why God wants us. It's instead, you know, we were, we were small and we were lowly and God chose us anyway and we're supposed to sort of remember that and remember the fact that our origins were in slavery and that's supposed to uh, kind of orient us in the proper way t towards God. Um, and, and I think one of the things that sort of goes along with that, aside from being humble, is also this idea that the fact that God saved us from slavery means that somehow, instead of being slaves to 
to Pharaoh, we now are slaves to God. Somehow, you know, because God redeemed us, we, we become slaves to God instead. Um, you know, this is also stated explicitly. If you look at source number 10, we're told, right? The people of Israel are slaves to me. This is God speaking. They are my slaves. Right? They are my slaves who, who I brought out of Egypt. Right? Be, you know, they used to be slaves to Paro, and, um, and, and because I redeemed them, now they become slaves to me. And so there's a sense that, that kind of the way that we think about our relationship with God is mediated through the fact that we were once slaves to Pharaoh. God, having saved us, sort of becomes the new master instead. Um, now, it's interesting to sort of spend a moment thinking about kind of what it means to be a slave of Paro and what it means to be a slave of God. And I think that one of the things that, that, that happens when you look closely at the verses in, in the Bible is that there's a sort of a comparison set up between the two types of slavery. Um, if you do sort of a quick Barilan search of the, you know, a database search of the word Eved or Avodah in, in the Bible, it comes up, I would say, in two main categories. One are all of the, the words relating to the slavery in Egypt, and the other place that Avodah is used a lot are sort of all the words relating to the building of the tabernacle. It's also called Avodah over and over again, and the sort of the, the, the sacrifices that are brought and the worship there is also, is also called Avodah. And there's a sense that, you know, when Pharaoh was the taskmaster, then there was one sort of type of Avodah, one type of work or slavery, and then once the people become slaves of God, then there's this other type of avodah. Um, and, and a key difference between the two is that um, the type of work that, that happens in the tabernacle is sort of goal-oriented, right? There, there's, 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 there's an end product that, that we're aiming for, and in fact, once the work is done, right, the, the verses tell us that, you know, that the, verse, that the, the work was done, Moshe stops asking for contributions, the people sort of finish everything that they're doing, and then, and then they're done. Was if you remember w with when, when the people are working for never an end to it, right? There's, there are always more things to be built. In fact, when, when Pharaoh wants to abuse the people, right, he doesn't, when he wants to make them work harder, he doesn't tell them to build more things. Instead, he takes away the straw, right? And the reason why he takes away the straw instead of telling them to build more is that he doesn't actually care about what they're building. Right? It doesn't matter how many, how many more buildings they build. He just wants them to be working really hard, just, just for, the sake of, for the sake of working. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a sense that, that the people are sort of, you know, trading, you know, trading in one master for another one, but that, but that God is a much better master. Right? It's, it's some, somehow very noble to be a slave of God, whereas it's, it's, it's very terrible to be a slave of Pharaoh. Um, in fact, there, there are two people in the Bible who are referred to as, as a slave of God, and each time it's, it's actually kind of the greatest compliment that they can be given. Moshe is called an Eved, a, a slave of God, and also Kalev is called a slave of God. Kalev ben Yifuna. And, and there's a sense that, that in those two cases, that's actually kind of the, the best compliment a person can be given is to be called a slave of God, whereas certainly a slave of Pharaoh is, is not something that, that people want to be. Um, okay. Uh, one, one last set, of, set of, of, of verses that have to do with, with the idea of slavery and how, it, how it's supposed to orient people towards their relationship with God is that um, it seems that, that if you look in source number 11, that one of, the, one of sort of the main worries is that if we forget our origins as slaves, we will somehow lose sight of, 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 of how we are supposed to be with God. Um, and and uh, chapter 11 over here, sorry, chapter 8 over here, Deuteronomy and source 11, kind of warns about that. Right? It says, starting with verse 12 here, Pen tochal v'savata u'batim tovim tivne v'yashavta, lest it come to be that you will eat and be full, you'll build beautiful houses and you'll live in them, u'vekacha v'tsoncha yubuyun, you'll have a lot of sheep and cattle, v'kesef v'zahav yubelach, and you'll have a lot of gold and silver, v'kola sher l'cha and in fact you'll have a lot of everything. 
what will happen, right, it actually sounds great, you know, living in, in this time of plenty with great houses and lots of food and gold and silver. Um, the fear, though, is viram levavecha, right, your heart will be sort of lifted up or become too haughty. You will forget God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? If you could really remember in the midst of this plenty that you were once a slave and that God brought you out, then it would be fine, right? You could, you could have actually be ideal. But the fear is that if you have too much stuff, if you have too much gold and too much silver and too many sheep and cattle and, and so on, you will forget that you were slaves, you will forget that God brought you out of Egypt, and instead what you will say in verse 17 is, you will say in your heart, it's my own strength and my own efforts that have gotten me all of, all of this plenty. Um, and the fear then is that, is that you know, if you forget that it was God who brought you out of Egypt and you forget that you started off as a slave and you think that you, know, you based on your own merits, have somehow been able to accrue all of this wealth, um, then you will forget God, and then basically the, you know, the rest of the chapter goes on to describe how the people will then turn to sin, and God will punish them, and you know, things will sort of fall apart. Um, but there's a sense that if you sort of constantly remembered really what your national origins were, if you constantly remembered that you began as slaves, then that would sort of encourage the proper sense of humility and gratitude towards God, and that would sort of keep people in, in, in the right sort of relationship with God. Now, I think on the one hand that's an interesting idea, right? That somehow, you know, basically the people start off as slaves of Pharaoh, then they become slaves of God, and as long as they remember that they were originally slaves of Pharaoh, that sort of will, you know, keep them in their right place. Um, it has sort of a disturbing side to it, right? Because it, it sounds a little bit like what we're saying is that maybe that God actually sort of causes the people to be the slaves of Pharaoh in order to sort of prepare them for their role as slaves of God. That somehow one thing, um, you know, the, this, original set, in this original experience of slavery somehow kind of sets the stage for this later relationship. Um, and that, that has sort of a, a disturbing feeling to it, right? In theory, you know, we wouldn't want God to sort of torture the people with slavery just so that afterwards they could, you know, kind of then be freed and feel better about being slaves to God. Um, there's a particular midrash over here in, in Shemot Rabbah that I think does a good job of kind of highlighting part of what seems disturbing about, about that scenario. The midrash starts off by saying, uh, this is source number 12, This is actually describing the scene right before the splitting of the sea. Right? The people of Israel see that they are surrounded on three sides. Hayam Soger, the, the sea is sort of closing in on them from one side, the Hasone Rodef, and the enemies are chasing them from another side, the Egyptians are chasing them, the Hayot Min Hamidbar, and the, the wild animals in the wilderness are also encroaching on them, basically being sort of totally surrounded on, from all these different sides. Talue Nehem Laviyam Shabashamayim, they sort of looked up, they. they fix their eyes on God, on their Father in Heaven, and they cried out to God, the verse says, the people cried out, the people cried out to God. Another Midrash asks the following question, why did God cause them to be in this situation? Right? God has just taken them out of Egypt, why put them in this situation where they're being threatened from all sides and where, they, where they're crying out to God? Right? You know, God just saved them you know, a number of days earlier, right? why not make it easy for them? Why not just let them go? Why, why have them experience this horrible fear of feeling that the, the enemies and the sea and the wild animals, every, everything is closing in on them? Why, why has God caused that to happen? And the Midrash gives the following reason. <laughs> 
can tell me whether you think this is compelling. And the Midrash says, Ela shahaya God wanted to hear them crying out. God wanted to hear their prayers. Um, so Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, well, what does this compare to? What kind of story can we tell to illustrate what's going on here? It's like the following story. There was a king who was traveling along the way. And he hears a princess crying out to him, Please, please save me from these thugs. Right? There are these sort of thieves or thugs who are attacking her. And she cries out to the king and she says, Please save me from, from, these, from these, these robbers. So the king hears her cries and he saves her. Several days go by, and the king decides that actually he'd like to marry this woman who he's saved from the robbers. And she, he really, he just wanted to hear her talk to him, right? He wanted to have her interact with him. She wasn't so interested, right? She was doing other things. So what does the king do to get the woman interested in him? He sets the thugs on her, right? He tells these thieves to go and attack her. So that she will cry out. And the king will hear her crying out. So sure enough, these thugs, these thieves come and they start attacking her. And she starts crying out to the king again for, you know, for, to be saved. And the king says to her, This is what I was wanting. I wanted to hear your voice. Um, and then the, the Midrash goes on to sort of compare that to the experience in Egypt. Well, we'll even see that, right? Right, so too, when Israel was in Egypt and the Egyptians were enslaving them, they, they began to, to cry out and to uh, focus their eyes on, on, on heaven, on God. As the verse says, you know, during those days, the people cried out to God. Um, and immediately God sort of sees their, their, sees their suffering and hears their cries and saves them. God then begins to save them with a mighty and outstretched hand. And God wanted to hear their voices still, right? They had been calling out to God before. But now that God has saved them from Egypt, they, they, they stop calling out to God. Um, uh, so what does God do? God causes Paro to chase them down in the same way that in the story the king sort of got those, those thieves or those thugs to attack the princess just so he could, he could hear their voice. Um, which, you know, is, at least in my opinion, is sort of really disturbing midrash, right? especially when you think about the story with the king and the woman, right? There's something really unpleasant about the king hiring those thugs to attack the woman just so he could hear the sound of her screams, right? That, doesn't, it doesn't seem like, I don't know, a particularly good way to behave, right? There's something really disturbing about that. And I think the fact that the Midrash uses that story to describe what's going on over here with God and the people of Israel is, is also sort of disturbing, right? There's a sense that God is sort of putting them into these troubling situations just in order to hear them crying out, right? And there's, I think that, that, that it's complicated, right? This idea that somehow the... Ex- our, our experience as being slaves in Egypt somehow kind of sets the stage for our relationship with God as, as a people is, is a little bit disturbing, right? Because there's almost a sense that God sort of planned it that way so that we, you know, that we would suffer in this way just in order to then afterwards kind of be very grateful when, when God saves us. Um, which, you know, 
I, I understand it's sort of only one way to look at it, but I think the Midrash does a good job of kind of highlighting what, exactly what's disturbing about that, right? There's something a little, a little bit disturbing about that. Yeah, were you going to say something? about the king and the woman, right? You could tell the story very differently, right? You could tell the story, you could say, this king, he once saved a woman who was being attacked, and then afterwards he saved her a second time, and look how great he was, right? You could always tell the story that way. The fact that the Midrash specifically describes it as the king hires the thugs to attack the woman just so she'll call out is a very deliberate choice on the Midrash's part, and I think it is sort of highlighting this, right? The Midrash is saying, God caused Paro to come and attack them, right? Why? Because God really wanted to, to hear them cry. And this idea actually comes up, I mean, it comes up in other places in rabbinic literature. There's always the idea that the reason why God doesn't let some of the the mothers of the nation have children easily is because God wants to hear their prayers. Right? There's definitely this idea in other places. Um, myself, yeah, I just thought this, this formulation over, over, over here was, was particularly interesting. Yeah. Oh, so that's an interesting way to read it. So what, what you would say then is that the, the people over here, as soon as they're saved, they sort of forget about God. And so God causes there to be some, you know, some kind of trouble so that they'll remember that they need God. Right, which is actually a much nicer reading of the story. I think, yeah. Well, I think, I think I was just more focusing on that language of, you know, the king wants to hear her cries, right? There's something about that that just seems it's a little scary, right? Would you want to, you know, be with somebody you want to hear your cries? Right, no, that's, that's true, that's true, right. Yeah, we should actually look at that. But the end of the Midrash concludes by quoting a verse from Shira Shirim, right? Yonati hasela, my dove in, in the cleft of the rock. Um, the, Midrash, the Midrash continues and says, Hashmi'ini kol enoomer. It doesn't say, let me hear a voice, but rather it says, Hashmi'ini et kolech, let me hear your voice. Um, and the Midrash concludes by saying, I want to hear the same voice that I heard in Egypt, the same way that you cried out to me when you were slaves, I would like to hear you crying out to me now. And that, that's why I've sort of stepped this up. Um, which, you know, just, I would say, is, is interesting. I don't, don't know much more to say about that than that. But, but, I, but I do think that there is, certainly in the verses, there's a very deliberate attempt to kind of set up the experience of slavery as sort of a model for the, the proper way for the people to interact with God, right? If we, we really remember that God rescued us from being slaves, then that will sort of instill in us the proper humility and the proper sense of gratitude, and that will kind of orient us in the proper way in terms of how, how we as, as human beings should be, should be thinking about our, our relationship with God. Um, so I would say that that would, might be sort of the second 
kind of implication of this focus on slavery, right? The first one is that if we remember that we were slaves, we feel an empathy with other people who are weak and powerless. The second would be that if we remember that we were slaves and God rescued us, that sort of puts us in the right place in terms of understanding our, our, our relationship with God. Um, and, and the third implication that I think is, is kind of interesting is that um, there's a sense in which, you know, the Exodus story is, is sort of a universal narrative. That maybe it doesn't really have anything to do with us, or maybe one way that it's important isn't, isn't that it's particularly our story, right? It's important that it's our story because we're supposed to feel this empathy and we're supposed to sort of relate to God in a way. But there's also a sense that the, the story itself is compelling, regardless of whether it happened, it, regardless of whether it happened to us. Um, I think one of the ways that we, we get, get the, the sense that maybe the story itself is important is that if you think about in, in the book of Genesis when God to Abraham and tells Abraham that his, his descendants will be slaves, right? It seems as if the whole thing is very premeditated, right? There's a sense that we, even before it happens, we know, as we read through the Bible, we know that it's going to happen, right? We know that Abraham's descendants are going to go to Egypt. They're going to be slaves for an extended period of time. And what God promises Abraham is, um, afterwards, I will sort of I, I will save these people, I will judge their oppressors, I will save these people and I will take them out and they will sort of, they'll also get a lot of property, I guess, part of the promise over there, right? They'll somehow, there'll be, they'll be some sort of a, um, kind of a compensation for, for, their, for their years of slavery. But mostly there's a sense that, that the whole thing was sort of planned out beforehand, that this story of people sort of becoming slaves and then being freed um, we kind of know that it's going to happen, and it kind of it, it exists as a narrative even even before it actually plays itself out. Um, and and I think that one of the reasons why that might be is that there's something very important about this story, right? About this idea that uh, that God is that God rescues people who are oppressed. That that's sort of the way that God works. Remember, we saw that a little bit earlier with some of those those verses. Remember back in. Um, Back in source number five, right, there was a sense that God is very powerful and what God does with God's power is that God helps the powerless. Um, and if you look over here in source, source number 13, this is the Ramban, um, he, he, I think, emphasizes this idea that the story of Exodus isn't just about us, it's really also about having this story exist in the world. It's important that everybody knows that this happens, right? And what, Ram, what Ramban says, he's actually that, that discusses how we shouldn't oppress the strangers. And he says, It's correct in my eyes to explain it as follows. You shouldn't oppress the stranger. You shouldn't oppress the stranger and think that there isn't anybody to champion the stranger's cause. There isn't anybody to save the stranger. Because you know, you know that you were strangers in Egypt. And I saw, God is speaking here, right? God says, I saw the, the oppression with which the Egyptians were oppressing you. And I avenged them, right? I, I, I took vengeance on, on them for their oppression. Because I, this is again God still speaking, I see the, the tears of the oppressed who have no one to comfort them, and who are, who are overpowered by their oppressors. And God says, I save all people who are oppressed from those people, you know, from the people who, who have more power than they do. Right? So what Ramban is saying is that God's message over here is that it's not just that I chose you and so I saved you even though you were lowly and 
slaves and oppressed, but in fact the message is that I will save anybody, right? God says, I will save all people who are oppressed, and don't think that just because you were saved by God that you can oppress other people, because no matter who the oppressed are, God is always looking out for the oppressed. God, God, you know, what is the line exactly? Anuru edimata ashukim, right? I see the, I see the tears of the oppressed, and I save all people who who are oppressed. And so too, you shouldn't, you shouldn't abuse or molest the widow and the orphan, because I will hear their cries. Right? Because all these people, they can't rely on themselves. They don't have the power to rely on themselves, and so therefore they. They rely on God. Um, and in a different verse, it gives the reason for this. You know the soul of, of the slave because you were slaves in Egypt. You, because you had the experience of being strangers, you know that all strangers are sort of downcast and he sort of groans and, and cries out and his eyes are always turning to God and God will have mercy on the, on the stranger in the same way that, that God had mercy on you um, then Ramban quotes a verse where the people cry out because of, of the pain that they're in and God hears them and Ramban concludes by saying, right, God didn't rescue the people of Israel based on their own merits. It was just that God had mercy on them because of all of the hard work that they, were, that they had to suffer. Um, so what I thought was very interesting about Ramban is that uh, my sense over here is that he's, he's not, what he's saying is that it's not just an important story for the Jews. Right? It's not just that you, you know, as the descendants of you know, these, these slaves, need to remember that you, you, know, you have your national origins in slavery and that should impact the way that you are. But in fact, the fact that God saved you from slavery means that God will save all people who are oppressed. And it becomes a story that's important to everyone. Um, almost in the way that Nietzsche talked about the slave revolt and morality, right? Once we know that what God does is God uses God's power to protect the powerless, that becomes an important narrative for everybody, right? As a story out there in the world, it's a compelling story and it's important that we remember it and that we tell it because it, it, it's important to everybody, not, not just to us. Um, and, and I think it's interesting to think about that because the truth is the, the story of the exodus from Egypt has actually been used in, in all sorts of ways, right? Uh, one way that, that I thought was particularly interesting, I have to thank, thank my friend uh, Noam Elcott for pointing this out to me, but if you look at the, the last source, source number 14, apparently when Benjamin Franklin... <laughs> Thomas Jefferson were trying to propose what they thought should be the great seal of the United States. This was their proposal. This is what they wanted the great seal to be. You'll notice in the picture there's a there's the, the people of Israel on the dry land over here. There's the pillar of fire and the clouds which are which are God. And then we have the Egyptians drowning in the sea. And around it it says rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Right? This was the message. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson wanted to say, right? And basically what they were doing was that they were casting the story of the American Revolution um, in the same terms as the exodus from Egypt, right? The idea was in the same way that the, the, you know, sort of powerful Egyptians are drowned in the sea by God and the Israelites are rescued, right? So too the sort of powerful British were going to be destroyed and the sort of powerless 
powerless revolutionary soldiers were going to be saved. And this idea of rebellion to, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, right? God wants, God wants the little guys to win out, right? God wants the vulnerable people, the weak people to win out and the tyrants to be overthrown. And so um, sort of using this kind of biblical story of, of the Exodus, you know, they, they wanted to sort of see their own conflict in the same terms. Um, this also happened, you know, sort of much more famously with the... Um, with uh, the, the civil rights movement, well, first the anti-slavery movement and then the civil rights movement in America, right, there was also sort of a sense of using the Exodus story, right, the, you know, the Go Down Moses song, right, which is all about, you know, the, the slaves in America sort of understanding their position as being similar to the Israelite slaves. In the same way that the Israelite slaves are, are saved by God, right, what that means is that it's not just that the Israelites are saved by God, but that all people who are oppressed deserve to be saved and, and will be saved by God. And that, that sort of is inspiring in, in in the same way. Um, I did a little bit of reading earlier this week also about the whole idea of liberation theology, which I still don't understand entirely, but um, it seems to be very uh, controversial within, within the Catholic Church. But, um, but the idea seems to be that, 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 um, that religion, should act as, uh, religion should act to liberate the people who are weak and vulnerable. And, that, um, and I think that that has its roots also in this story, right? There's something very compelling about a story of people who, who are weak and vulnerable and don't have anyone to look out for them and then are saved by God and sort of become, become chosen. And, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's particularly important for us as the descendants of those slaves to remember that. And that's why there are these, you know, constant, constant reminders in prayer and the whole kind of stay there is supposed to be kind of a re-experiencing of the slavery so that we don't forget it. Um, but I think there's also a sense that it's, that it's an important story, not just for us, but actually for everyone, right? It's, it's a story that has, that has meaning and that can sort of be used, you know, to good ends by, by everybody, you know, not, not just the people who are, who are actually, you know, descendants of the people who were involved in it. Um, okay, so I think I will stop here. Are there any questions? Yeah. I'm sorry, what was that? I, I didn't hear the last thing you said. It's a great point, right? There's, there's that whole question of, right, you were supposed to, on the Seder night, we're supposed to, we start off with something sort of difficult or shameful, and we end in the end with something glorious. So one opinion is that we start by saying, the other opinion is that we should start by actually recalling that our ancestors originally were idolaters. Um, I think both of them have to do with this sense of instilling kind of a humility in us, right? That, you know, we started off with lowly origins, and so, you know, we should be humble because of that. Um, I think the idea that remembering that our ancestors were slaves, though, seems to me to be the idea that is won out, right? Because, you know, in our daily prayers, we don't, we don't so much talk about our ancestors who are idolaters, but we do always talk about Egypt, right? And, the, you know, we do sort of mention, right, there, you know, at the beginning of, of the Seder, we do mention, you know, in the beginning our ancestors were, were idolaters, but the, the real focus of the Seder is not about the movement away from idolatry, but it's really about the movement out of Egypt. And so my sense is that that's kind of the, the main focus. Although, uh, you know, it certainly couldn't hurt to remember, remember other, other parts of our history also. You can say something? Yeah. yeah uh, sorry, somebody mentioned Magakad, but the big deal that God took us out of Egypt, he put us there. Mm -hmm. right? So, Yeah, mm -hmm. but uh, I met by a stone also. That's what made us a nation. Mm -hmm. 
uh, before we only have family, mm-hmm. the, the experience of Egypt put us together and became other nations. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we talk so much about this experience of slavery, right? We do have a sense that that was, it's a very formative experience, you know, possibly for some of the reasons that we talked about tonight. Um, And I think that that Midrash that we looked at also kind of talks about, you know, what does it mean? You know, it seems as if God almost, it, it does seem as if God sometimes puts the people in a position where things will be hard for them and that, you know, in terms of, you know, God put us there to start with and then saved us. And I, I think that that is an, an interesting aspect of it also. Yeah. the Joseph story, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the Joseph story is that he doesn't seem to have empathy with the weak afterwards. Right? Remember, he starts off as a slave, and if you remember when the Egyptians run out of food, right? remember, he makes them all sell themselves into slavery to Pharaoh in order to get food. So there is a sense that even though he starts off as a slave, he doesn't so much have this... those verses, from what I remember at the end of Genesis, I think it actually says, you know, he says, you are now all slaves to Pharaoh, which is, which is interesting. I mean, some commentaries say that he does that, so that way afterwards, you know, it wouldn't be so bad for the Israelites when they were slaves, but it is interesting that that, 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 that happens. I also once heard uh, Dr. DeVore Steinmetz suggest that maybe one of the reasons why the people wind up as slaves in Egypt, particularly, is that, you know, having sold Joseph as a slave into Egypt, they sort of need to go down there and become slaves themselves in order, in order to get him back. It's also just an interesting way to think about it. Um, Okay, great. Thank you so much. Have a good session.